I spent the last three years learning from some of the most ingenious mergers and acquisition specialists around. And now I've decided to take the leap into buying businesses. The real questions are how will I do it? How much of the behind the scenes can we really show? And how can business owners like you maximize their purchase price and build generational wealth? This show is going to give you the answers. Join me and follow along as I share mine and other stories as we buy, sell, or merge healthcare businesses and physical therapy practices. I'm Dave Kittle, and this is The Dave Kittle Show. Hello, everyone. This is Dave Kittle. Welcome back to The Dave Kittle Show. Today, we have excellent special guest, Iris Kimberg. She's a physical therapist and occupational therapist and a previous practice owner. She's got a wealth of knowledge and had a fairly large scale practice at one point. We want to hear all about that. And I have nothing to sell you. We are acquiring outpatient physical therapy and in-home therapy practices. I'm the CEO of the Fieldmaker Group where we're doing that. I'm also the owner of Concierge Pain Relief, home physical therapy in New York City. And before we bring on Iris, there's a couple of questions that I want to ask her that are some of the burning questions for therapy practice owners out there. So if that's you, you want to listen in. Couple of the questions we're going to ask Iris is how much is my practice worth? Meaning you, the audience, how much is your practice worth? How do you value your practice? Or in other words, what might be your EBITDA multiple, depending on scale and location and a whole bunch of other factors? And also, do I need a broker or financial advisor during the exit and sale of my practice or not? So, Iris, welcome in and thank you so much for your time. Thank you, David, for having me. I'm excited to be talking with you today. So really appreciate it. And so tell us, let's go into the background and the backstory of yourself as a practice owner. I know it, it had scaled to, I don't know the numbers exactly. I know it was fairly large. Tell us the history of your practice and why that kind of leads into what you're doing now and, and who you're helping. Sure. In a nutshell, and this is a 40-year history, so this is not a quick tech company that goes public in, you know, in two years. But I started as an occupational therapist in New York City, you know, back in the late 70s, early 80s. I, I am not embarrassed to date myself. I'm 67 years young or old, depending on your perspective. And I worked at Rusk Institute, which at the time IRM was the premier place for rehab, blah, blah, blah. Yet they didn't have a home care department. And I went twice to the chairperson of the OT department said, hey, why don't we have a home care department? All these people get discharged and no one's following them. And they blew me off twice and that's all it took. And I said, you know what? If they don't want to have a home care department, I'll start one myself. And that's how I literally started my private practice was doing, you know, not unlike you, doing at-home visits. We didn't call ourselves mobile therapists at the time, but that's what we were doing. And I did that as an OT, became very busy in a very short amount of time, and went on to start to hire PTs, which was a very logical approach since the same patients who needed OT often needed PT. Fast forward to find out that in my great state of New York, and this still exists today, unlike professionals cannot hire each other, my Solution to the problem back then in the 80s was, oh, I better go back to PT school. Now, of course, there are other ways that a PT and an OT can work together in my state and in other states. But at the time, that was my solution. Turned out to be a very good business move. So I became an OT and a PT 
and continue to grow my company really organically and based on, you know, I saw from the beginning that this was really a numbers game, that the more people, the more therapists I had working for me or with me, the greater number of patients I could serve. So I went from me, then me and three others, then me. And, you know, by the end of 25 years, I was up to 700 therapists. So that, you know, but again, this was a 25-year stretch, not a two-year stretch. Along this, at the same time, and, you know, I was very young when I started this because I sold my company and I was only 41. So, you know, I started, you know, as most young therapists do. What I saw as I was getting older, I got married and I had a kid. Other therapists were getting married and they were having kids. Many of them moved to the suburbs. And I saw an opportunity. I mean, I stayed in the city, but I said, all right, half of my labor force is now moving to Westchester. The other half is moving to Long Island. I'm going to follow them and open a branch in Westchester, open a branch in Long Island. And that was really my model for growth. And I knew that I could get the patients because at the time, you know, I mean, what what I was doing was very scalable and could be duplicated. And I was able to duplicate it in two locations, Long Island, Westchester, later on in, in New Jersey. And then if I fast forward, by 1996, I had grown a company that had 700 therapists that was grossing $14 million. And personally, I knew that I had taken this company to as big a level as I wanted to or could without having a big old heart attack. So I decided that, you know, certainly not looking to retire at age 41, and I didn't, and I still am not, but that the timing was right. And the timing was right. And, you know, I mean, this goes to the question of how do you know when to sell your practice? And some of that is very innate. And I saw that changes were coming. And one thing when I, and now I do a lot of consulting, and one of the things that I help therapists look at are trends. I saw a trend back then, managed care was coming. It started in California, it was rolling across the country due to hit New York very soon. I knew there were major changes. I also saw other trends, and this is how I grew my company. I started only doing adult care, And then all of a sudden, peds became very fashionable. And I realized, you know what, I've got to expand. So I expanded into pediatrics and I expanded into school-based services. And that, that was all by following trends. So the trend that I saw was not only that managed care was coming, but that big companies were buying other companies. So at the time when I sold my company, I had six very serious potential buyers, which was Wonderful. And of course, looking back now, one of the reasons why I decided to become a consultant was because I did this by so much trial and error and so much relying on a lawyer and an accountant and not really understanding the process that I said, I don't want anyone else to ever feel as vulnerable as I did during the process. Even though the outcome was wonderful, I you know, I sold my company to a Fortune 500 company. I did not look back for 30 seconds, only forward, and continued to work for the company for three years, then continued to live under my favorite time of year, which was period of life, which was when I had a non-compete clause and couldn't really be in the industry. 
And during that time when I couldn't be in the industry, the 700 therapists would get in touch with me. Hey, Iris, how you doing? What's up? I, I want you to run a question by it. Let me ask, can I pick your brain? Can I take you to lunch? The usual, you know. So, and that's how the, the consulting and the advising came from. Exactly. And I noticed, hey, I have identified another need. And that was the need to offer that kind of service, which now we have a ridiculously crowded platform of advisors, <laughs> coaches. It's scary. Then there were a few, 99.9% of them were men. So I stood out instantly. And I had some very innate skills that I knew could be helpful for others. So was the exit in, if my math is correct, was the exit in 1996? Is that correct? Correct. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. And, the, and so the you, exit, but then I was still working for the company for, you know, or it was during my non-compete period, but that's when I was formulating the really being a consultant. And I lived downtown in New York City, always have my, although my agency served many different areas, you know, our primary location, flagship location was downtown. When 9-11 happened, I was four blocks from the World Trade Center. My home was eight blocks. There were 14 practices that were destroyed or damaged because of the terrorist attacks of 9-11. You know, September 12th was the day I really started consulting because I said, I got to help these practices. And what could I do to raise money to get them on their feet? How could I help them get back? And, wow. and that, I never heard that. Yeah, you, so that, wow. that's literally how I started my what really sealed the deal for me that, you know, this is the time to, you know, to help help my fellow therapists. And it's just been going strong since then. And we didn't cover in the pre-interview, but are you able to now discuss who was the acquirer? Or I don't know if you put that publicly on the internet or not, or? Well, let's put it this way. I'll leave it to everybody who could Google. And I challenge you, you should be able to find out not only who I sold my company to, but even how much I sold it. To. Oh, man. This is public information, so it's out there. What was the name of the practice? <laughs> <laughs> I could also find it I later, whatever. The company actually still exists today, I, I'm happy to say. It was called HTA of New York, Inc. HGA of New York? HTA. HTA. It used Got to be it. Home Therapist Association. And then as I expanded beyond home, I had to ditch the home. So I just went with initials and it was HTA. Really quick. How, is it, how amazing is it that what you sold is still in existence? Oftentimes things get, you know, yeah. cut or closed yeah. or, you know, after an acquisition. That's something I didn't even realize with this conversation. Yeah. That yeah. what you previously sold was so valuable. It still lives on today. Yes. Now it's probably been sold, I think, two or three times since. Okay. So it's morphed and evolved. Exactly. But it's almost comical because sometimes when therapists, the funny thing is, the director of HTA once contacted me looking for a job and thought that I could help her because I have so many, con you know, I mean, I've been in the industry for so long. And I said, you know, do you know that I was the founder of the company you're currently working for? And she didn't even know that. So, you know, it's boys. What's most interesting, if there were 700 therapists in my company, I still talk to a good many of them. And, you know, and as I've grown up and grown old, they've grown up and grown old, too. And many have gone on to develop their own entities and things like that, which, you know, I like. But, of course, from a sentimental point of view, it's nice to know it's still. 
Okay. So that's incredible. You grew to a pretty large scale. Now you're helping practice owners and therapy practice owners and advising them on many things, including, but not limited to exiting and selling some combination of exit strategy and succession planning. So let's go back to a couple of the burning questions that a lot of practice owners are either interested in, or they have, I definitely hear from a lot in terms of what their either the roadblocks are or in the very beginning of their process. So if a practice owner comes to you, Iris, and they say, okay, my practice is doing a million dollars in top line revenue, how much is my practice worth? And we could use as much fake numbers as you'd like, or we could you know, just speak in generalities. But if a practice owner comes to you, hey, Iris, uh, you've gone through this and they haven't, how much is my practice worth? Well, let me just backtrack for one second, because one of the reasons why I like to consult with startups, I like to consult in the growth and strategy part where therapists are scaling and, you know, 50% of what I do is practice sales. But why I like to get in on the ground floor with therapists is so that question, how much is my practice worth, is at the forefront of a therapist's mindset when they start their practice. You know, so to come to me 10 years out and say, how much is it worth? Well, a lot of that's going to depend on what you did the last 10 years. So I'm all about from the beginning, build your practice as if you're going to sell it, build it. And you have to build in value. And if people do that, then strategically, by the time they call me up and say, hey, I want to sell my practice or, hey, I'm netting, you know, I'm grossing 1 million or blah, blah, blah. How much could I sell my practice for? It becomes a lot easier to answer, but it's still a very relative question, you know? And I think really what most people have to take into account is that, you know, there's many factors that make a practice valuable. And there are what I call value makers and value takers. Obviously, the more value makers that you could have in your practice, the better. When it comes time to actually value a practice, you know, it used to be that people said, oh, it's one times gross. And I wish that was true. I wish that we could just say, okay, you grossed a million dollars. The value of your practice is one times that. So it's a million dollars. That went out the window a good 15 years ago, if it ever was in the window. But, you know, one times gross is rarely used formula. Now, something like an EBITDA calculation or what I think most people need is an adjusted EBITDA calculation, basically looks at what your earnings are before taxes, before interest, before amortization. And then, you know, if you had to simplify it, you sort of look at your net profit. So this million dollar practice, I would say, you know, as a general ballpark, you look at your net profit, you add back in, any discretionary spending, and this is one of the issues of a closely held company, my own included. I had to add back in if I was using it to pay for my auto lease, my, you know, all of that kind of discretionary spending with no judgment on anybody. You know, sometimes therapists are, they say, oh, well, Iris, I have a Costco list, I call it. I said, hey, fine, I have a Costco list too, you know, but you have to add back in expenses that you run through your company that would disappear once you no longer own the company so that you could come up with a truer number of your net profit, which is why the EBITDA calculation really should be an adjusted. Following that, so let's pretend we get to a number. 
So I'm going to pretend the number is $250,000. Then we multiply that by what's called a multiplier. And here, here is where things go from being objective. Like you could number crunch. And I work with accountants all the time and they take out 10,000 spreadsheets and it's fantastic. And they number crunch 10 different ways. And then we get to the multiple and objectivity basically goes out the window. And, you know, anyone could argue this with me, but I think I'd win. The multiple that you use is a subjective number. And the multiple is what you times the net profit by to get to your ask price. So just common sense. If I assigned this therapist a multiple of one, the ask price would be $250,000 times one or $250,000. If I assigned a multiple of two, it would be 250 times two. Then it'd be half a million dollars. If I assigned a multiple of three, it would be $750,000 onward and onward. So the real question becomes, how do we assign a multiple and how do we determine what a multiple should be? So going back to that issue of value, the real key is the more value you have in your company, the greater the multiple will be because we have to defend a multiple. I'm forever defending therapist multiples. Here's why I think, and generally, and I think Dave, you'll agree with me, typically practices go from a multiple of three to six. That's typical. There are outliers on either side. But yep. how do we, you know, there's a huge difference between me assigning a three and assigning a five. And it's really the value, what we say, what is the value of this company that will make that determination. And you have to look at tangible assets. You have to look at intangible assets. You have to look at really even where the practice is located. I mean, although I am a New Yorker, I sell practices all over the country. And part of what I love about that is you really get to understand different parts of the country, different necks of the woods. What And there are value makers that are different. You know, in New York City, no practice is going to have a parking lot. So it's a no brainer. But a practice that I sold in Colorado, a great selling point was, you mean you have unlimited parking? That's fantastic. And they plow the parking lot. Cha-ching, cha-ching. That's good for your multiple. Or the, it's, lo- you know, it's located in the center of town. So there's so many factors that will go into a multiple. Really, you know, I mean, the flip side of it is, is that a multiple is really what we think a particular buyer will pay. Right. So if I go back to my story, when I had six potential suitors, as I used to call them, I strategically said, okay, here are these six groups. Who am I going to sell to? I wanted to sell to somebody who had zero presence in New York City for two reasons, or New York. One, I wanted my job. If I had sold to another New Yorker, what do they need me for? So I wanted it to be a non-New York company. And I also wanted to be someone that wanted a footprint in my neck of the woods so that I could defend my multiple. And it worked. Because they'll usually pay higher for that. Exactly. Exactly. So if we fast forward to today, if we go back to your sample, you know, the therapist is grossing a million dollars. It's so relative to what else is in the area, you know, who's in the area. And I see this in all parts of the country. When you're selling to an entity, 
and the entity is already established in your neck of the woods, they need you far less. You know, I mean, on some level, they like to do what's called the tuck-in acquisition. Oh, let's just add another one to our pocket of acquisitions. But do they really need you? No, because they've already got a footprint there. So they're going to be willing to pay less than if someone is like, oh, I want to break into the market in Florida. I'll pay top dollar. I want to break into the market in Seattle. So, you know, there's so many factors. But no matter what, you have to have some inherent value that you've built into your practice over time in order to even get to the multiple stage or get to the stage where your practice is worth something. And let me say, I've never met a practice that is not worth something. And I've walked many people, many practice owners, especially since COVID, off the Iris, I'm closing my door or Iris, let me help me sell my equipment. And I literally walk them back and say, wait a minute. Uh, let's just take a little bit of a deeper dive. Give me one hour and I want to see whether there's something more here than just the equipment that you've had for the last 20 years. And inevitably there is. And then when you do those deeper dives with practice owners, I mean, you mentioned value makers versus value takers. Yeah. And you mentioned the greater the value of the practice, the greater the multiple. So a practice owner, a therapy practice owner that's listening is probably going to be thinking to themselves, okay, Iris, well, how, and also maybe how long will it take, but how can I increase the value of my practice? Now, me, shorthand, I would say, well, improve cash flow. Like the more profit margin, the more that you can negotiate a higher multiple because that's more valuable to an acquirer. But what are some other factors? Like, obviously, you'd want to see the more full time staff members that are clinicians, therapists, PTs, OTs, PTAs, CODAs, et cetera. And also how long they've been working there. I mean, there's so many factors, but what are some of the factors that drive value for therapy practice owners? Well, in addition to the two that you mentioned, and I just want one caveat. In our industry, the labor force that we have really drives, you know, we're nothing. It's all about human capital, you know, even more so than profitability. I mean, everybody likes a profitable company. But I've worked with practices that are less profitable, but the new owner knows that they could turn that around because they've got better systems, more streamlined, they could integrate certain things. But having therapists that work for you, you know, and you know, I solo practices all the time, but it's a whole different thing when you're a solo practitioner selling a solo practice versus a practice owner that's got staff. And, you know, if anyone learns anything listening to this, Look very carefully because big hint, value of your practice goes up incrementally when you treat therapists as employees, not independent contractors. Because very often the new owner, that's one of the first things that they calculate and they say, no, we're going to have to reclassify everybody. It, it's not worth what you're saying because that's going to cost us X amount of dollars. Meaning in, in terms of payroll taxes and all that for W-2s? Right. right. Or even sometimes, you know, if a new owner comes in and they're going to reclassify people, they may lose a percentage of the workforce, which sometimes could happen. And that's going to impact the value. And if they're an independent contractor, they can leave easier. They can exit easier because they might already have a part-time or full-time job elsewhere. Well, as an independent contractor, they should. So right. they should always have one foot out the door because they're independent. You know, whether they do realistically or not is a totally different topic. But 
typical other things, sometimes it's your location. Like I have more calls that people when they want to sell their practice and then they say, oh, by the way, my lease is up next month. And I'm like, hey, you know, location, location, location. Right. As an acquirer, we love to speak with owners where they have a new lease that can be reassigned and it's like a 15-year lease from right now, 15 years into the future. Exactly. Or at least that's transferable. I mean, that's a multiple driver up. That's a value maker. A value taker is, oh, if the building may be sold in a year, you know, it's a problem. Right. Anything that has longevity, for example, if you like, you know, here in our industry, everyone is so like cash based, cash based, cash based. Okay. But in the world of selling a practice, a tangible asset is the contracts that you have. So I always tell people, before you cancel everything, I just want you to know that to somebody else, there may be value. If a bigger company buys your company, well, they may have a different price that they get, you know, a different rate that they've negotiated as a facility with, as an example, I won't even, we're not mentioning names, but they may have a different price point. So while you may get getting paid subpar by a particular insurance carrier, they may be getting paid 15% more. So historically, insurance contracts are looked as value makers, not, you know, there may be an occasional one or two that are value takers. Things like contracts, if you have a contract with assisted living facilities or with school systems, I always tell therapists, you're not going to sell the month before the contract is You know, if it's a three-year contract, let's sell in year one of the three-year contract, not in year three, because then there'll be a liability. And that doesn't mean that a buyer might not be interested, but the real lens everyone has to think about is the risk. So the riskier a purchase is seen as by a buyer generally, it makes sense. The lower, they're going to want to pay for it. So the multiple sure. down. So if, if they view it as risky, like I'm working with a practice owner now that has about six contracts, but they're up every single year. That's a risk. And there are ways to circumvent that. We've built into the equation that there's a safety net for the next buyer. If X percent of the contracts don't get renewed, the purchase price goes down. But we also get some upside potential, too. If the contracts do get renewed and they do better, then the owner could actually get more than their original. The other thing I just want to mention, when someone is buying someone else's practice, we're not just buying existing conditions. We're buying the future. So your job when you're selling or my job when I'm trying to assist in the sale, I want to show someone, here's what you could do with the practice in the future. Here's how you could put your fingerprint on it. So as a matter of fact, I don't even like to sell practices that are too big because it's harder to come up with. Here's how you can grow. Here's how you could expand. But a a good mid-side practice that you could say, you know what, you could add different services. You could start with secondary revenue streams, blah, blah, blah. Add a home-based component, add an in-office component, add a telehealth, all of those things, add a new discipline. That's what a a new owner wants to say, I want to increase this practice by 50% in two years, and here's how. So future growth and development is key. So I thought that was, don't worry if you haven't done everything yet, because let the new owner do it. 
I might have to disagree with you a little bit on there. And maybe we just have to go a little bit deeper because a lot of owners will tell us, hey, there's a lot of potential here. You know, we could go out of network. We could add cash pay services. There's opportunity to grow. You could hire more therapists. You can do X, Y, Z, right? And many of the owners are telling us that, but that's, that's going to be our time and effort in the future. So ideally, as acquirers, we're not necessarily wanting to pay for the future performance. We want to actually pay for the current value and the most recent the most recent financial track record, whether it's the last 12 months or the yeah. average of the last three or four years. So right. can we go a little bit deeper on that? Because yeah. I don't want to, acquirers can't pay for the future performance that they themselves have to do. Well, for starters, you're right that you essentially pay for existing conditions. But as an example, if we were talking real estate, you could have a dilapidated house, but it happens to sit on the Hudson River. Okay. That's going to go for a lot because... Everyone knows, all right, I'm going to rebuild. It's going to cost me X, Y, and Z. My return on that investment is going to be huge because of the Hudson River view. And to some extent, that exists with practices. Now, a purchase price will be based mostly on existing conditions. But I mean, I argue this. And when I say argue, it's more defend. We we discuss it. We discuss it. It's it's a collaborative process. We discuss it. Right. With a, you know, maybe a little bit of a hard head, but, you know, I know firsthand that if a, let's say a bigger fish is buying a smaller fish, that they have it built into their formula that we know automatically if the this existing condition only has a 10% profit margin, you know, revenue based to what they pay therapists, they're going to be able to make that higher by virtue of bringing in all the billing in-house in their system. So, you know, to some extent, everybody does look at, well, here's the existing conditions, but I know that I can make them better almost instantly. I mean, sometimes there's diamonds in the rough and people will, you know, will pay that amount for the diamond in the rough because they have already done their homework to say, all right, it's going to cost us this much to do that. And this is where, you know, I tell people all the time that you have to be very flexible, not only in your ask price, because no one puts an ask price and says, okay, here's the check, goodbye and good luck. It never works like that. You know, there's always a give and take and there's always contingencies. And I'm a big fan of contingencies. Like I would rather help a therapist get their top dollar, but say, look, especially this happened for two years during COVID. And I helped to sell so many practices, but most of them had contingencies because any buyer was scared. What happens if the practice is not going to meet their existing numbers because of COVID? So we had a safety net for the buyers. And I think that's very fair. I mean, you cannot guarantee that the next patient is going to walk in the door once you sell your practice. And everybody knows that. And that's the concept of goodwill. That, again, one of the things you build in your practice over time is goodwill. And the goodwill and your historical ability to have the practice exist for the number of years that it has existed, that's part of what the buyer is purchasing. Is saying, well, look, the practice has existed for five years or 10 years or 15 years or 20 years. Have a feeling it's still going to exist on the 21st year, even if it's under new ownership. That's the intangible. So we have those tangible assets, 
but the goodwill is really the in, intangible that that plays a, a very important part in the purchase price. Got it. Can, can we just touch back on if an owner says to a potential acquirer, "Hey, there's a lot of opportunity here. Right. It's doing a million in revenue, right. but it has the opportunity in this space, right. in the square footage, right. and right. if you optimize the operations and things that right. we mentioned, it could be generating two million dollars." Right. So the acquirers are like, well, if it could generate $2 million, how come you didn't right. or it, couldn't get it there? That's perfect scenario. And thank you for the example. So as an example, if you have a practice and you're generating a million dollars and you think that there's enormous potential, one of the things I tell therapists all the time, especially, and here's again why I don't like to work with someone just when they're about to sell, because I like to build my case. So I tell therapists, Keep track of all the patients you don't treat and good track. We're not treating 10% of people because we don't accept XYZ insurance company. We've got a wait list because I don't have staff, but that is showing to the next buyer. Here's who I haven't. You don't have to do any marketing. Okay, I, I can agree with this. I can like this. Okay. So all you have to do is show them and it's very tangible. Let's, another company may have more assets to be able to hire more staff. And that could instantly, instantly, just from existing conditions, just treat every single patient that gets referred to the practice. And honestly, when I sold my company, I said that to them. I said, you don't have to do any marketing. Just hire more. The 700 were not enough. We could double revenue if you hire more staff. And, you know, and and it whether it proved to be true is another story, but that's beside the point. It, it was true at the time that, you know, and I see this in practices all the time, like, you know, they have a wait list, they turn down people all the time. That to the next owner is real potential, Got you it. know, among other things. Okay, this is great. Two more burning questions from a lot yes. of the practice owners that we know that I speak with and, and that we covered in the pre-interview. So two more questions we're gonna, I wanna ask about, do I need, does the therapy owner, do they need a broker or a financial advisor or not? We're going to come back to that. And another question was price versus terms. So do you believe, since we're talking about multiples and we're still kind of in that discussion. So do you believe that the seller can always or usually get price and terms? Or do you think that they usually get one or the other? They get like, for example, if they want a million dollars for their practice, and if they want hundred percent cash at close, then maybe some buyers are going to say, well, we could pay you more than a million dollars, but it would be an earn out. Or if you want more money at the cash at close, then maybe it's going to be closer to 750 grand or something. So the therapy owners out there, do they always, can they always get price and terms or do they usually have to pick one or the other? Again, to me, flexibility is key. Nobody gets, in order to sell a practice, you literally are coming to a consensus between two parties. And there will always be a give and a take. I have never or rarely had a deal where cash on close, that's it, 100% down. Although my own practice, that's exactly how I sold it. I had no contingencies, but that was a different era and a different and, time. Period. And the buyer was public and they had a exactly. lot of cash flow. But let's go back to the million dollar. Let's pretend there's a million dollar purchase price. Realize, and I, I think it's very important for everyone to understand who your potential buyer will be. At a million dollars, we know most therapists are not walking around with a million dollars in their pocket or have access to that. So you may already be eliminating 
you know, you can't sell to another entity. You're already going into, I may have to sell to a multi-state provider. I may have to sell to someone who's got private equity connections and things like that, because your regular average therapist, even with help from family and friends, doesn't have that money. And no matter what, I think that you have to be flexible on terms. And I'll throw one other thing into the mix. It's also very different if you want to continue working for the company. And I'm a big fan of if you still want to be working for the company and nobody just leaves on a handshake, there's always some transition period. And that could be as little as 45 days, 90 days, six months. But some people like myself at age 41, I wanted to work because I said I'd be a horrible role model for my daughter if I stopped working. So I needed I needed that, to work in the company. And that helps de-risk the situation for the well, acquirer because you can kind of help of with course. morale and culture yes. and transition, yes. right? To some extent. You know, they to want you around for some period of time. They usually don't want you around forever. But when you're thinking about terms and structure, factor in your employment agreement or your consulting agreement. So sometimes if I'm not getting the price I want, at the ask price, I say, all right, then we're going to have to get it another way. It'll be through your employment agreement. Then we're going to have to ask for a little bit more in salary to make up for the fact that, you know, they're not paying you exactly what you wanted for your practice, especially now. And COVID certainly has been an accelerant to practice sales, but I even noticed it before COVID. You know, we're in an industry that's changing. And maybe for the better, you know, parts for the better, parts for the worse. But I don't think, I think that people have to be realistic about what their practice is worth. And most practice owners are not. And, you know, nine out of ten think it's worth more than it actually is. And it's like, you know, by the time I talk reality with them, you know, they're realistic and a touch disappointed, which I understand. But I think that everyone has to understand it from everyone's vantage point. Like if you're... You know, so that the terms, if you want to get 100%, yeah, well, maybe I'm willing to take a little bit less because I don't want these contingencies because contingencies come with risk. Like if you're going to say, okay, I'll take 50, and I always tell therapists, at a minimum, get 50% down. I don't want to deal with that's less than 50. But if I'm leaving 50% on the table based on what's going to happen in the future, not under my stewardship, but under the stewardship of another owner, that's very risky. You know, how do I know they're going to do a good job? I have therapists who say to me, what happens if they purposely tank the company for the next two years so they don't have to pay me more? And I'm like, you know, no one is going to spend half a million dollars. And like, okay, now I'll send oh. the house on fire. I, I said, it, it just, you know, these are not these kind of buyers. So But I think that people do have to be realistic. And, you know, this ties into your question about a broker, use of a broker or not. You know, and I'll go right on the record and people who know me know that I don't function as a broker in the sense that I never take a percentage of sale. And half of that is because oftentimes I know both sides of the equation. I know the seller. I know the buyer. I don't want there to be any perceived or potential of a conflict of interest. If I was a broker, I probably, you know, I'm human. I know the more I say the practice is worth, the more I could potentially make. And it could skew my thinking. I like to really be objective. I like to as much as possible. And I also like to be fair because at the end of the day, in order for a deal to work, it has to be fair. Now, 
Some therapists do use brokers. I believe everybody needs somebody in their corner. I call myself an intermediary. Sometimes I call myself a facilitator, whatever. But I think you need somebody in your corner. And honestly, someone who's not your lawyer charging you an exorbitant amount of money to even read a one-page non-disclosure agreement You need someone in your corner who understands the industry and that you could bounce what's going to happen in this deal because they all have to be negotiated to do this on your own. And again, if I flash back to my 41 year old self and my everyone in my office was like, why is Iris walking around with six men with suits? And that went on for six months. And I was literally I was alone, you know, except for my high-priced lawyer and accountant, even back then. It's not, it's not a good feeling. You know, you need an advocate, but a clear-headed advocate. And I believe that there probably are some brokers out in our industry that meet that criteria and somehow cannot have a conflict of interest, you know, and, and also give an accurate, you know, I mean, a typical broker could say your practice is worth more than it is to secure the deal, get an exclusive and get you nowhere. And, and that, sometimes that, that exclusive is the owner has to pay some like marketing fee oh, to be on the website, to be, to be sent out to the broker's email list, right? It's real. Yes. I mean. And that, that's not including that therapy practice may never sell. Of course. And it's, it's essentially you're tied in, you're locked in. And even if you thought, you know, I mean, the therapist that I've worked with that end up using a broker or want to use a broker, I say, okay, have a carve out carve out, you know, maybe someone that I'm going to bring to the table. Why should you have to pay your broker if we found someone together? And, you know, any reputable person. And there are some brokers who say no carve outs, no carve outs. I go us, you know, fair is fair. And at the end of the day, that's the operating word here. Right. And some of these brokerages or brokers are, you know, it's like a 10% fee. So if you sell for a million dollars, they're getting a hundred grand that comes out of the seller's portion of the financial transaction. Right. Right. On top of which, and I think here's where I probably, why I'm as successful in doing this as I am. I really understand the industry. I understand it. I get it. I understand a lot of brokers just don't, you know, and this is a service industry. We're much more than number crunching. If you don't understand the nuances, the subtleties of our industry, it's very hard to really get it. Hmm. Okay. So we covered price and terms. We covered broker or financial advisor or not. Um, there was one more final thing I wanted to bring up. So we covered EBITDA, multiple, how to value your practice. How much is your therapy practice worth? In terms of therapy practice owner, learning more about you and what you do. So you will, obviously, we're not going to ask about your your rate, but is it basically like they retain you or is it just like, per hour or per like quarter or per year or it's I I probably am one of the few left that and therapists know this too about me I have an hourly rate it's prorated by the minute with no minimum time requirement so I have literally worked with therapists for 15 minutes someone once sent me a marketing letter I taught marketing at Columbia in the DPT program and entrepreneurship for 12 years I could read a marketing letter and change it in 15 minutes. I've done that for therapists. That's it. One and done. 
And other therapists, literally, I help them start their practice and I've gone and helped them sell their practice. So I have very long-term relationships. I have very short, but everyone pays according to the time that I, I spend on their project. And you could use me as much or as little as possible. No hard feelings. I'm very tough skinned. And it seems to work. You know, my goal at this stage of my professional life, and, and I tell this therapist all the time, you know, you have to watch out for therapists who are quote unquote business coaches, blah, 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 whatever they want to call, who are making money off of them. I actually try to make money for therapists, but not make money off of them. You know, I'm very happy, as a matter of fact, almost as happy as the practice owner when a deal closes because I can say, all right, I'm done with this. Because, you know, these deals, you're working on multiple at the same time. I love when a deal closes, you know, as much as the therapist does. So it's very interesting that since you're not taking a percentage like brokers do, it is fairly obvious and, and kind of refreshing that you can then be the word the word you described was not, not independent, but you described it with a word where you're not going to inflate the potential asking price yeah. just because you would be getting five right. or 10% of that dollar amount. So you actually can give them like, like fairly candid, open yeah. feedback about value and EBITDA multiple and price yeah. range and all of that. To the point that although it's not my favorite thing to do, and I'm usually either representing a buyer or a seller, but occasionally I sit down at the table with both of them on a small deal. And in two hours, we're done because it is what it is. It has to be fair to both parties. And I, and I honestly, if it's not fair to both parties, the deal can't go forward. You know, I mean, there's nothing worse than buying a practice and having the owner, the original owner, the seller being upset because believe me, people are going to still talk to that seller. And so you want everybody to be happy. And honestly, there's a way, as long as people realize I have to come to a consensus, nothing is perfect. And somehow it almost always works out, which is an, a nice thing. Got it. So if there's anyone in the audience, a therapy practice owner, looking to reach out to you and yeah. communicate or contact you, I want the audience to know your website, where to contact you online, because you also have a lot of great webinars and resources, yeah. and they're either free or accessible and fair in terms of like, yeah. The price and, and all that. I know the one webinar you said is W2 versus independent contractor. And then there's a webinar for how to sell a practice. So there's a lot of offerings and resources that you provide. And you've also been very generous with your time here. So what would be a great place for therapy practice owners in the audience to contact you to learn more? Anyone could find me. You could Google Iris Kimberg. I come up. Iris Kimberg 11 at Gmail. Iris at nytherapyguide.com. You know, I have to always tell people I don't only work in New York because I actually work more outside of New York than in New York. But that was the name of my website 20 years ago, www.nytherapy.com. I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Facebook. I'm pretty accessible. And although I'm not going to give you my cell phone number, but, you know, therapists text me all the time to the point that, you know, my daughter once said, you know, you don't do blood and oxygen. You don't have to be, you know, you don't have to answer everything <laughs> immediately. I said that, you know, that's very true. But in that sense, I'm old school that, you know, generally people don't reach out to me when things are wonderful. People reach out to me when, you know, there's an issue, there's a problem, there's a, you know, occasionally people reach out and this is ideal. You know, when you sell your practice, if you're selling at the top of your game, 
That's fabulous. And, you know, and that get that goes back to trends. You know, sell on the top of your game. It's no different than a, a series on TV going out when their ratings are high, not when their ratings are low. You know, but more typically, people are calling me when COVID hits. People are calling me when, you know, their lease is up or they can't renew it or their practices. You know, it, it's very easy to sustain a practice in the beginning, but it's harder as you get bigger, older and competition. So I try to be very responsive to it, to my constituents, really, honestly. Right. For the YouTube video, can I just screen share your website real quick on this call? Are you okay with that? Did you? Oh, of course. You pulled it up? I got it up. So okay. I just I was just going through it because I wanted to just show the audience that there's there's a lot of resources and there's testimonials here. So you can, you know, see who Iris has worked with potentially. There's ways where you can just easily jump over to her consultation page under products. There's like we mentioned, resources on buying and selling a practice, pediatric resources, recorded webinars, forms and templates and contracts. Arguably, they're going to be cheaper here and probably, I believe, vetted by uh, Iris' yes. attorneys before rather yes. than you having to spend more money uh, doing it with your own attorney or finding yes. an attorney somewhere, right? Or finding yourself in a funnel of, you know, infomercials. <laughs> but wait, there's more. And right. join my group and then spend 2000 you know. Right, right. This is the opposite of that. I really try to be accessible to the therapists who, you know, who need it is what it comes down. Right. And I just looked on here, you have practices uh, listed, like a, almost like a, yeah, like a listing. Yeah. Well, again, after 40 years, you get to know a lot of people. So, you know, I mean, you'll see practices all over the country on there. And not only practices, practice sales equipment, job opportunities. I mean, there there's a lot of variety. But as an example, if you scroll down that, you'll find a practice, you'd have to scroll pretty far. In California, a speech therapy practice for one year. Do you know, do you know which page? There's I five pages. I have no idea. I have no <laughs> idea. Well, it may even be archived at this point. Anyway, okay. I'll leave with the message of hope. The therapist was retiring. She lives in a small town in northern California was the only speech therapist. I couldn't find anybody. And that's real, but we couldn't. Well, three days ago, I get an email from her and she wrote, I wish you were right. It only takes one. And we found the one right therapist who's moving to the town, who's going to buy the practice. And I'm as happy as this practice owner. I mean, she was literally going to close down. And the town would be left without a speech therapist. And for this new speech therapist, again, talk about the future. How did that therapist find that opportunity? From your website or another way? From Well, I send out e-blast. I have got, you know, mailing lists. I post it on different websites, you know, different LinkedIn channels and Facebook channels. Or, you know, and again, I keep a running list. But after a while, it does, you know, get buried too far. Sure, sure. But, you know, honestly, it only takes one. Our job is how could we find, really, it comes down to who's the best suited to buy your practice. And, and that's another lens any practice owner has to look at. What is my ideal buyer? You know, and then you may have to settle for a little bit less than ideal. But, okay, I promise this is my last thought. I always tell therapists, look within first. My favorite deals are when a practice owner has a few therapists working for them and sells to one of them or sells to all of them. 
those are my favorite deals. That's like a beautiful secession story, you know, and it doesn't always happen. But when it does, it's always nice. But always look within and then we'll look outside of your, you know, your practice to see who might be appropriate. Okay. I love that. That's a great place to leave it. I love it. Definitely want to have you back in the future. Uh, If you have more topics we can discuss and cover. Iris, thank you so much for your time. Go ahead and reach out to Iris, everyone. uh, nytherapyguide.com for a lot of those resources, listing of uh, different opportunities, either for sale or just career opportunities. There's a lot of resources. Check out all of her offerings. Are you still doing the podcast as well? There's a podcast on there. You do that I, as well? Yes, I do. I'm very delinquent at the moment because I, I'm literally very busy. But it's, you know, I think I did one about a month ago, but I, I'm overdue. Overdue. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for your time. Go okay, ahead, guys. Welcome. Reach out to Iris. She basically can act like a broker without having to pay her <laughs> the large broker exactly. percentage. She'll give you honest, candid, and experienced feedback on your situation. And I agree. I think therapy practice owners, unless they've gone through transactions before or have experience with buying or selling either, even if it's real estate or their location or a practice, uh, it definitely always helps to have some type of a an advisor or a consultant, someone in your corner, as Iris described it. So Iris, thank you so much. You're welcome, David. Have a good day. And thanks for having me. Of course. Okay. You're very welcome. Bye-bye. Bye. Hey, it's Dave Kittle. Are you a healthcare business owner or physical therapy practice owner who is looking to figure out your succession plan or exit strategy? We might be able to help. And in fact, we may be interested in acquiring your practice. If you're interested, you can reach out to me. Shoot me an email at dave at conciergepainrelief.com. That's D-A-V-E at C-O-N-C-I-E-R-G-E, painrelief.com or You can call me at any time, 646-781-8884.